This is Jennifer Gonzalez welcoming you to episode 115 of the Cult of Pedagogy podcast. In this episode, we're taking a close look at problems with dress codes and how you can make yours better for all students. A couple months ago, I saw two different news stories that broke my heart. Both were about dreadlocks. The first story was about Andrew Johnson, a high school wrestler in New Jersey, who wore his hair in cheekbone length dreadlocks. Moments before Johnson was about to go to the mat for a match, the referee told him he wouldn't be allowed to compete because his hair was too long. Forced to choose between forfeiting the match for his team or cutting his hair on the spot, Johnson opted for the haircut. In the video taken at the meet, we see Johnson standing stoically while a blonde woman takes a large pair of scissors and chops off hunks of his hair, hair that likely took up to a year and hours of maintenance to grow and shape into its current style. With the haircut finished, Johnson took to the mat and won his match. The video of the incident went viral. Some held up Johnson's decision as an example of being a team player while many more expressed outrage and disgust at the referee and all the other adults who let things get as far as they did. The second story was about Clinton Stanley Jr., a Florida six-year-old who was turned away at the door on his first day of school because his dreadlocks, which extended below his ears, violated the school's dress code that required boys' hair to be cut above their ears and collars. A photo that looks to have been taken before the incident shows Clinton ready for his first day, eyes shining, a clean collared shirt pressed and secured with a navy blue necktie, backpack strapped on, red lunchbox in hand. He looks excited, like millions of other kids in their first day of school pictures. What we see next in the video taken by his father is the same child wearing the same clothes still carrying his lunchbox, but his eyes are no longer shining. His shoulders sag as he and his father listen to the school staff explain, with a truly disturbing lack of compassion, why he won't be allowed to start first grade that day. Dress codes are meant to create safe, positive learning environments in school, but too many of them have the opposite effect, shaming students, robbing them of instructional time, and disproportionately targeting female students and students of color. The good news is that some schools are stepping up to fix the problem, updating their dress codes to make them more reasonable and equitable. My hope is that your school will be next in line. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with two different people about this issue. First is Cassandra Dillard, a writer for Teaching Tolerance, who covers equity issues in education, among other things. Cassandra walks me through some of the most problematic requirements found in many dress codes and helps clarify how they harm kids. Next, I talk with Dr. Marcus Campbell, Assistant Superintendent and Principal of Evanston Township High School in Evanston, Illinois. In August of 2017, Evanston made significant revisions to their dress code, and Dr. Campbell had an instrumental role in that change. We'll talk about the process his district went through to make the update what the most significant changes were, 
and how things have been going since the revised dress code was put in place. At the end of the episode, I'll share some resources you and your school can use to start the process of updating your own dress code. Before we get started, I'd like to thank ListenWise for sponsoring this episode. ListenWise is an online listening curriculum featuring curated podcasts from NPR. Explore engaging and relevant nonfiction audio stories aligned with ELA, social studies, and science curriculum for middle and high school students. With ListenWise Premium, you also get classroom-ready lessons with built-in literacy supports and automatically scored comprehension quizzes, which track student progress on skills such as identifying the main idea, inferencing, and point of view. To learn more about ListenWise, go to listenwise.com. Support also comes from Microsoft OneNote Class Notebook. OneNote Class Notebooks have a personal workspace for every student, a content library for handouts, and a collaboration space for lessons and creative activities. The collaboration space encourages students to work together as the teacher provides real-time feedback and coaching. Teachers can provide individualized support by typing, writing, or inserting audio or video directly into each student's private notebook. OneNote is free and available on any platform. Learn more at onenote.com classnotebook. I also want to thank you for the reviews you've left for this podcast on iTunes. I absolutely love reading these reviews, and they really help bring in new listeners. If you've never left a review, I would love it if you would take a few minutes, head over to iTunes, and tell me what you think. The Cult of Pedagogy podcast is part of the Education Podcast Network. The EPN family now includes 27 different podcasts, and each one is focused on education. Check out all of the EPN podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Now let's talk about dress codes. My first guest is Cassandra Dillard, staff writer at Teaching Tolerance. I'd like to welcome Cassandra Dillard to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. I asked you to come on here because I wanted some help talking about the issue of uh, dress codes. Um, mm-hmm. th- I think those are they're part of a larger problem of discipline policies in schools that tend to target some populations over others. But right. for this episode, I really wanted to just drill right down into dress codes so that schools can start taking a look at what might be problematic in their own. Absolutely. And so... Um, and you and I asked you because you've written about this topic a couple times, um, and so I thought you'd be a really good guide yeah. for discussing some of these particulars. Right. I know that a lot of schools see they see kids sometimes making clothing choices that they that they find to be inappropriate or um, disruptive to the school day, and so I think a lot of schools are have tried to, to craft language that is going to hit just the right note, but I think a lot of schools are just missing some pieces that are, they don't realize what it's doing to impact, um, impact kids from certain populations. Exactly. So I thought, I thought what we could do is maybe just start going through certain areas and and some specific rules that are really, um, really causing problems and talk about why these are discriminatory in the first place. Okay. So what we did is we sort of got got these broken into three groups, um, rules that discriminate on cultural basis, um, rules that discriminate along gender lines, and then some that are even economically discriminatory. So um, in the list of cultural issues, cultural problems and dress codes, the the first one was 
was dreadlocks. There are schools that have rules against specific hairstyles mm-hmm. like dreadlocks, braids. Um, I've even seen some schools that have a rule against large afros. Mm-hmm. And so talk a little bit about why these types of, it sort of, sort of seems very obvious to me, but um, talk a little bit about what the problem is with those, those types of rules. Well, the, the news stories that I've seen that go viral tend to be centered around a black student's hairstyle. Uh, it may be culturally relevant to them. So you're singling out um, a group of students based on their culture or their heritage or their ancestral roots, which is problematic, mm-hmm. <laughs> to say the least. Uh, we're basically asking these students to erase who they are in order to get an education. Um, and the policing of black hair, especially with young girls, women, has a long history. I mean, you can go back to the 1700s when black women in Louisiana were forced to wear head wraps because these elaborate hairstyles that they were wearing were considered a threat to society. So just imagine, you know, thinking that a person's beauty is offensive. Um, I think in the news more recently, I think it's been centered on dreadlocks because a lot of people are starting to wear that more here in the United States. Um, and it was a little personal for me too, because I have locks. So when the video, I think the, it was a little boy, I don't remember the state, it may have been Florida, but, um, he was getting turned away at the front door on the first day of school. So I couldn't imagine putting myself in his shoes. You know, I don't know how I would handle that when I was a young girl, Mm. imagining being crushed to think that the way I wore my hair as a symbol of my ancestral pride would be an infringement on school policy. So at the root of that is, you know, we have these arbitrary guidelines that don't consider a person's identity, their cultural background. You know, there wasn't even, I'm assuming, conversations around, you know, the differences in how people style their hair and the history that may be tied to it. And I think if you set your schools up in a way that is welcoming and inclusive of all cultures and everyone's identity, you probably wouldn't run into that problem and you probably wouldn't have a policy that excludes something like that. Right. At the very basic level, we're punishing kids and we're shaming them for how they are naturally. And I think if we had some kind of cultural awareness at the very basic level that schools would have a conversation about these differences and how they can make their policies more inclusive of students because of their race or their gender or their cultural or ancestral background. If you take those into consideration, if you already operate from a standard of everyone is safe, everyone is welcomed, everybody's included, then things like that wouldn't happen. What do we say to people who say, look, the the rule is not against, I'm, I'm thinking in both of these cases, actually, what the schools were saying is our rule is not against dreadlocks. Our rule is against length. And all we just wanted these boys to have their hair at a certain, you know, all boys, they say, had to have their hair at a certain, like couldn't touch the collar or whatever it was. What do we say back to that? If they're saying it's fine to have the dreadlocks, but you just have to cut them. What does cutting dreadlocks mean to someone who has, well, first of all, let's share with people how long it actually takes to grow and develop dreadlocks in the first place and 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 
why is that more than just a haircut? It takes a big commitment. So if if it's already to the, if it's shoulder length already, if you have locks, you've been growing them for a few years probably. And it, it takes a lot of grooming and um, upkeep to keep them healthy and get them there. And you can't just comb them out. They have to be cut out, most mm-hmm. of them. Um, because it's, it's basically matted hair that's been twisted together and it, you know, it grows that way eventually. Mm-hmm. So, um, so to have someone say, cut this off and you've been growing them. And, and in addition to the time and the commitment you made to it, it's also a sim- symbol of your pride in who you are. Um, and a lot of people who grow locks is in resistance to assimilating into, you know, dominant white culture. You know, we're told that you have to have your hair straight or it's not professional. It has to be neat. And this is not perceived as professional and neat in some cases. And I believe there was even some court cases where they decided that employers could discriminate or not hire people based on them having dreadlocks. Hmm. So it's, it's pretty deep for, um, for people kind of navigating through that. But as for the length, um, I would ask school administrators why what is the issue with the length? Like, can you can you give me a real reason what that does? Is it about safety? Is it about I know a lot of times they say distraction. How is that distracting? You know, girls have long hair. Mm-hmm. Is it more about is it because of it doesn't fall into the the um the rules of what a male is supposed to look like. And that's a whole nother issue if we're trying to go by gender roles. Right. Right. It's got more to do with just a a preference and and maybe even like a, like a white dominated cultural history where these are the norms that we're all, we were used to. And, and I know that certain teachers, they just sort of have an idea of what proper appearance should be. And, and now would be a time to start questioning that. Right. And that can be pretty subjective and, and I think that's where you need to have conversations within the school and within the community. Um, that way everybody feels included. While we're still on the topic of cultural discrimination, that uh, Monique Morris is the, the author of Push Out. I interviewed her a couple of years ago, and she, she made me aware of something I really was not aware. A lot of schools have got rules against hats or headscarves or hair wraps or do-rags or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And she, she was talking to me about black girls who might be in the middle of getting their hair braided and actually wanting to cover up their hair because it wasn't done yet. And they could end up getting suspended over the refusal to, to take a hat off. I, I hadn't thought about that, that issue of wearing the hats in between um, getting your hair done. But I, I relate completely, you know, before I had locks, you know, that there, there's this time where either as a protect, you know, a way to protect your hair, or you just don't feel it's a bad hair day, and you have new growth, and you just want to hide that. Um, yeah, I, I think that teachers should, I mean, if you have a, a relationship with your students, if you're having conversations with them and getting to know who they are at the very basic level, you would have an understanding of these cultural um, diverse, this diversity of culture where 
I know that her hair has a different texture. I know that she has to do X, Y, and Z just to prepare to get to school every day. And I want to be mindful of that and not um, impose some kind of punishment or some kind of rule that would prohibit her from A, coming to school or feeling shamed or feeling like she needs to be fixed. And I think that's at the source of, or the bottom of all of this is the way we were acting to young black girls' hair and how they, you know, maintain their hair as something that's wrong that has to be fixed. This is how the, it grew out of their head. So it's not a lot that they can do mm. about it other than just to keep, keep it clean and keep it groomed as they do. So, um, you, you just have to know your community. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, but that's, that's part of being a teacher, know your community, know your students, ask questions. If you don't understand it, just ask questions and um, ensure that everybody feels included and feel valued. Because if, if I'm going into school and my teacher thinks that I am dirty or that I need to be fixed mm. or that I'm upset just because my hair is wild and curly, then I'm, I'm going to have, I'm going to feel some kind of way and I'm probably not going to learn in that class. Absolutely. And well, and I would think that some kids in order to avoid that conflict to begin with are just staying home. Um, we don't even necessarily always know the reasons kids miss school. And, you know, if I'm a seventh grade girl and I'm feeling self-conscious about my hair that day, then I just may not go. I might pretend to get sick or something like that. And we want kids to be in school. Right, exactly. And that's, I mean, that's the most important piece is having all these side issues that, you know, kids, you know, they have feelings, you know, they have emotions. So if they're thinking about this, there's, you know, it's, it's just disruptive. Mm-hmm. They're not concentrating on academics at all. Right. So let's, let's move to, to gender. Um, and policies that tend to target one gender over another. Um, There's language in a lot of dress codes about distracting styles and, Mm -hmm. you know, things being too short or too low cut or strapless or the bra showing. And so talk a little bit about how how these rules can tend to um, be discriminatory. I think think it does a couple of things. I think it is... It could body shame, and it can also play into um, gender-based shaming, and it can also play into rape culture because um, we assume that if we just police what girls are wearing, that, I mean, it implies that the onus is on the girl to prevent any kind of inappropriate behavior from someone else because of what she's wearing. And I don't, I'm not sure if schools realize how harmful that is to, to shame or blame girls for how someone may react rather than addressing that issue in particular. There shouldn't be inappropriate behavior, period. And as you know, it's even more harmful for black girls because we already know that it, that they tend to get more harshly reprimanded in schools and in the justice system for doing the same things that their white counterparts were doing. Mm-hmm. And just like with the hair, their bodies are over-policed as well, whether they have, you know, developed differently or they have curves that, you know, they're they're a target. 
Um, I know at the time that the lock story came out, the boy that was turned mm-hmm. away at the, at the door, there was also a story out of California where I think it was the San Francisco Bay Area, if I believe, um, there was a group of students who came up with the idea to say, let's do away with the dress code that we have and just wear what we want. And the school, the school approved it. So they can wear hats, shirts, they can show their midriffs, they can wear ripped jeans, they can wear athletic wear, leggings, tank top, tops, all the stuff that most schools would say are a no-no. And a lot of schools would say that some of those things are too distracting and against the, the dress code. Well, I think students and some schools are starting to realize that these arbitrary rules are doing more harm and they're listening to students to demand who are demanding a more fair and inclusive policy that doesn't push school students out of school or into some kind of punishment or shame them for just having a yeah, body. Yeah. <laughs> and at, the, at that California school, of course, they did lay down some rules like you can't display hate messages or violent speech or anything profane, visible underwear, that type of thing. But at the very core of it, though, the policy is recognizes that you know, they have autonomy over their own bodies. And if there's any issue related to how they're dressed, then that's a separate issue about behavior right. and about you know, the entitlement of someone to interrupt your space. But, um, but yeah, they're, they're listening. That's at least one good example of people pushing back and saying that if I show my stomach at school, it doesn't mean that I can't learn and it shouldn't distract anybody else from learning. And before that happened, there was a school in Texas. They faced a lot of backlash because they had they made a video that basically shamed girls. They were called, I think it was um, dress code violators. And the the video was set to a song called Bad Mm. Girls. And it was basically wagging their finger at the dress code violators and showing them what was appropriate and not appropriate to wear to school. And I think the biggest thing was athletic shorts. And I don't know what the deal was with athletic shorts. Maybe they were too short Short, or too thin. I don't know. But um, thankfully, though, there was a lot of backlash, and they ended up apologizing for that video. But it just goes to show. And they didn't go into what what was inappropriate for boys they continue to wear, you know, athletic shorts. So it was a double standard and it was very gender biased. It's, it's just kind of all around playing into that rape culture is that you have to present your, yourself a certain way in order to be, you know, appropriate and be respected. Where, where would you say the line is for and I, I've looked now, I've looked at some sample revised dress codes, and I think they're doing a good job of defining that, but I'm just curious about your opinion. Um, I'm trying to think now like somebody who's just, you know, pretty old school and says, you know, does that mean that we're supposed to just let girls come with their boobs hanging out and their butts hanging out at the bottom of shorts? And can they can they wear anything at all? Um, like, is there a line that schools who are revising their policies can still draw in terms of just, um, I don't know, not nudity, but near nudity? Or or is it just supposed to be anything goes, really? I don't think it's anything goes. I think, obviously, like what the, the school in California did is that they considered what was, you know, visible underwear and 
something that was profane or any kind of violent messages. I guess every school would, it would depend on the community. But um, some of the things that historically have been included in dress codes have to do with the color of your hair. You know, it can't be purple or green or, you know, red or something like that. And it, the boys can't wear long hair or they can't wear earrings. I think things like that, things that are subjective in some people's right. eyes is not appropriate, is what's changing. I don't think they're they're ready to step over to say, just wear what you want. <laughs> and we want scrutinize it but I think it's I think it's on a you know it's it's a good momentum right now um let's talk a little bit too about just um about gender roles in particular when we've got students who are non-binary um or or students who are maybe transitioning how do these rules end up interfering with those kids in their learning we happen to have a very great guide that addresses that um, best practices for serving LGBTQ students has to do with school climate and checking your policies to ensure that it's fair and it's standard and it doesn't marginalize or discriminate against these students because they may not fall into that the traditional gender role. They they may be binary, they may be trans um, gendered and they have a right to express their gender as they ri- as they wish, regardless of how people may see them. So um, I believe in that guide, there is a sample dress code um, that they captured in there. I forget what school it is, but it kind of lays out is does your dress code use words like respectable, revealing, provocative, distracting? Um, do girls get more violations than the boys? Does your dress code require that students express that the gender expression match their sex assigned to birth? Those are some things that you can ask yourself when when administrators are making these policies is making sure that it's inclusive. Does it have different rules for male and female students? Because if you do, then the non-binary students or are going to feel left out. They're going to feel awkward. You know, we talk about prom, you know, there's a lot of rules about prom and, you know, girls or people who are perceived as girls mm. can only wear dresses and that type of thing. So uh, I think it was Portland Public Schools, their dress code policy was a good example that we used in that. Um, and they showed that I mean, they, they have the, the basic guidelines. You know, you have to wear a shirt. You have to wear pants or, bo- or bottoms. You have to wear shoes. But it's not about making your your uniform or your dress code identical to what the outside world may see as appropriate. Right. It's about you being comfortable and you being expressing your gender and expressing who you are. Speaking of comfort... Let's, before we move past uh, gender, let's just address the issue of menstruation too, which you just published an article on, um, on menstruation and how, you know, we need to be looking more at how we keep our, our menstruating students more sort of comfortable and, and able to continue learning. And so this also impacts, um, some dress codes out there that require certain types of clothing. So, um, Help us understand that issue too inside the dress code issue. 
One of the things um, I found in the research, and one of the schools that had received a lot of criticism because girls or people who menstruated were bleeding through their, their clothing and they already had some restrictive bathroom policies. You know, they were allowed to go to the bathroom, of course, but sometimes, you know, they had to look for a person to take them to the bathroom or they had to wait. I mean, it was um, at the risk of, if, if you have to go to the bathroom to take care of that while you're on your menstrual cycle, you may have an accident. And with young girls or anyone who menstruates, you know that, it can come on suddenly, especially if you you don't realize what your cycle is yet. So you'll bleed through your clothes. Now, if you are wearing light colored pants, like khakis, like a lot of school, um, school whether it's public, private, or charter, they include in their dress code that they have to wear khaki, right. but no other um, alternative to that then it can be more obvious if you bleed through those clothes and that's embarrassing. And then there's the issue of, well, if we had a basic understanding of what the menstrual cycle is and that, you know, we have equitable sex education then maybe that wouldn't even be embarrassing and we wouldn't stigmatize it. But mm-hmm. nonetheless, if you saw your clothes, you don't want people to know <laughs> that you saw your clothes. So if you have a darker pair of pants, if that's an option, that would kind of help at least not, you know, save you from that embarrassment. And I don't think when people, when administrators include that in their, in their policy where everybody wears khaki bottoms, whether it's a skirt or pants or shorts, Mm -hmm. they don't consider that people who menstruate may have an accident, especially if there's already restrictive bathroom policy. And that could cause a problem for the student. They can stay at home. They can get worried that, well, if I, I might, you know, get my period today, so I might stay home because I don't want to deal with, you know, fighting to get to the bathroom mm-hmm. and then having to put mm-hmm. a shirt around my my pants and everybody knows why I'm doing that. So that's, that's something that I probably didn't think about before I started writing the story. But I, but I, I remember being a teenager in high school mm-hmm. and and not, you know, being worried about, you know, any kind of accidents showing through my clothes if that happened. Yeah, that's so, like for any girl, you know, between the ages of like 10 and 18, that's like your constant fear all the time that that's going to happen in school. And you hear horror stories about it happening to people and that just intensifies the worry about it. It does. It's very distra- <laughs> it's distracting. And who can, who can think and who can learn if you feel you know, like everybody's watching you because it's already stigmatized. The whole issue of menstrual, the menstrual cycle is already stigmatized. Nobody wants to talk about it. We learn about it separately, you know, in, you know, by gender. And we look at it as something that needs to be fixed, something that needs to be cleaned up rather than this is a natural process that everybody, um, half the population goes through. So we have that we have that foundation. We already have that history. So to put on top of that, you know, not addressing what can happen if this happens at school, then you know we're we're missing a whole we're missing we're letting down a lot of students, half the half the population yeah. of the school. 
So before we wrap up, let's just also just add that, that there's some economic discrimination happening inside some dress codes that are just built in that maybe people that create them never really considered before. Mm-hmm. And so does anything come to mind along those lines? Yeah, I think about, um, I know a lot of schools kind of go to the um, uniform so they can remedy that mm-hmm. issue um, where everybody wears the same color bottoms and tops, you know, polo shirts. But the thing that I have seen with some schools, and I have sons myself, so I remember that if you're, if you're going to wear a coat or a sweater or a jacket, it has to be like the school colors mm. and, uh, or the color of your uniform. So that can be prohibitive if, if, you've only, if you've had a coat for two years and it's green and your school colors are red, you know, mom may not be able to go out and buy something just so mm. you could be in dress mm-hmm. coat, you know. So um, that's one issue. And a lot of times, too, uh, especially at private schools where you have to buy the like the polo tops that have the emblem or the logo of the school on there that can be prohibitive, mm-hmm. you know, cost prohibitive. You know, you can go to a department store and get a five or ten, you know, polo shirts for you know, like seven dollars each. Right. But if you get something that's embroidered, that's going to cost you a lot more. That's the only thing I can think about is you know, um, is just requiring. It's one thing to make it an option, but if you require. Uh, students to buy certain things, then then you're going to run into some issues where, you know, you don't want to get into where a student's getting picked on because they don't have, you know, the best uniform or the best coat or the best sweater. Then then you're talking about kids who don't want to come to school or who get punished because there's some kind of issue at school related to that. Um, you know, and one thing that I noticed in some of the dress codes I looked at or, or some of the articles about dress codes just had to do with how they were even being implemented. If a student violated the dress code, then the penalty would be that they'd have to go home and change. And that automatically is going to set up a problem for families where, you know, parents are working during the day. They're not able to just take off and, and get their kids or the kids don't have transportation to get home. I read a story about a girl who had to take two buses to get home <laughs> to change for dress code. So that just, that ruined her whole mm-hmm. school day that she was out the whole day. Another thing that, that I remember is belts. A lot of time um, students will get reprimanded. They go to in-school suspension or even get suspended if they, if they come to school without their belt so many times. Mm-hmm. It's something I never really understood. <laughs> But if, if, and then we get into the whole school to the, to um, prison pipeline where you're setting kids up to be, you know, in this very punitive environment. And then they, I mean, it just kind of escalates or dominoes because at the very beginning, all, all they did was not wear a belt or not do something that was, um, that matched the dress Mm. code. And that's not enough to put somebody into a situation where they're out of Mm -hmm. school where they could find more trouble, where they can get in trouble in school with the a school resource officer. So there's just so many implications to that. You know, maybe maybe ask the student, why don't you have a belt? Or have some belts available in school right. for people who probably lost their belt or their mom couldn't afford to buy a belt. I mean, we just have to ask questions and make it um, equitable right. for everybody. Right. Is there anything else that you wanted to add on this topic? I think you've kind of covered everything. I think the bottom line is 
when you're thinking about school dress codes and hair policies, I think administrators have to ask themselves, why are we doing this? Does this make students safer? Is it inclusive of everybody? Does it reduce or erase harm? Or is it causing harm? You know, is it keeping kids out of school? I think if you can't answer those questions, then you probably have to go back to the drawing board. And I think we have to also keep in mind it, when these situations about dress codes and hair come up in school, it almost or at least disproportionately affect black students. So we're pushing a whole group of kids out of school or we're, we're robbing them of an education just because they're just are a target. I know a couple of years ago, there was an article or a study published actually about mm. the adultification of black girls and how they're more punished in not just in schools, but also in the in the system, the criminal justice system, because we see them as adults rather mm. than as growing children. And if you see you rob them of their innocence, whether it's through their body, you know, body shaming or issues with their hair or that you you assume that they're older than what they are, then you feel like they don't need the support that they don't need, that they're not vulnerable. Yeah. And that's that's something I think um, we need to to focus on, too, is making sure that black students, all students of color have the same nurturing, the same protection and support and comfort as their white counterparts, because they're at, at the at most case in most cases, they're the ones who are getting punished for some of these rules. Thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. It's been a big help. Thank you. I hope I answered everything correctly. Oh, absolutely. I hope it was some help to you. Thanks again to Cassandra for helping us take a closer look at this issue. My second guest is Dr. Marcus Campbell, Assistant Superintendent and Principal of Evanston Township High School in Evanston, Illinois. Evanston's story is a great model for how school leaders can go about updating their own dress codes. So if you could just tell me a little bit about what Evanston's dress code was like before you made this change. Um, before the change, our dress code was rather um, antiquated. It looked similar to the dress codes in high schools of the late 80s and then the 90s, mm-hmm. uh, so much so to that where some of the restrictions that were in the dress code were no longer available in stores. So, um, and uh, we found ourselves in a position where we could not enforce the, um, the dress code that was on our, on our books. So, um, we were trying to figure out exactly what to do with that. Okay. So apart from, can you give me an example of something that wasn't available in stores? Um, I would talk about like the length of shorts, that shorts would have to come down uh, for young ladies or women, a girl or people who are presenting female, right, mm-hmm. uh, down to their um, certain inch part of their above the knee. Well, there weren't right. there aren't shorts that will do that, and uh, even for 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 young men, um, shorts are seven inches, five inches, and they're getting shorter and shorter. Still appropriate, right. or what is considered appropriate for. Um, if you're going to play a game of soccer or just want to be cool in the summertime, mm-hmm. 
the, the, the shorts of the old days that come down to the knee uh, just aren't around anymore. <laughs> right. Did you did you have any other problems in the, in the system that sort of made you think it was time for a change apart from just availability of certain things? Oh, absolutely. Our, our dress code, number one, it was, as I said, it was unenforceable. Uh, we have over 3,000 students, uh, 36, over 3,600 students in this high school. And on a day in, in, in the Chicagoland area where it's 93 degrees outside, um, people want to be comfortable. And there were lots of kids in the school who didn't have the appropriate length of shorts and, uh, and other items that were on. Of course, they were appropriate for uh, um, to be out in public, but they but the school's dress code was a little bit more conservative and restrictive based on the amount of skin shown, I guess. Mm. Um, uh, and then it was also not uh, equitably enforced. Uh, a lot of our students felt, and I agree with them, that that if certain females were in a, not a certain body type, mm. then they were, and I say dress coded, I use that as a verb, right. sent to the dean's office. So if they had more curves or uh, they had certain features that were developed, uh, they were dress coded over another young lady who um, may not have the same features, but were wearing the exact same items. Yep. Yep. Um, and then our young women of color would say to me that the uh, our uh, students of color were uh, dress coded more than, than our white girls were. Right. So we found it to be racist. We found it to be sexist. We found it to be antiquated. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was not body positive, And we, there was just trouble all around uh, with our dress code. And we knew we needed to make a change. So were the students the ones who sort of really got your attention on this? Sort of what prompted you to, to start looking at making a change? Well, um, I, I always knew that our dress code needed to be um, um, updated, mm-hmm. but I really didn't know what to do or know, uh, know about how to, to go uh, to go about the change. And um, but I knew it was something you know, as the principal, <laughs> right, mm-hmm. uh, and someone who's in charge of the, the daily operations of the district uh, and the school. I knew it's something that we needed to address. Um, but one day our students were just fed up with how they were being treated and they staged a protest outside of the superintendent's office. Oh, wow. I would say maybe 10 or 12 percent of the kids, so about 300 kids who were out there just sitting. They just decided to stage a sit in <laughs> to say somebody's got to come out here and talk to us about how ridiculous the dress code is. And of course, I was the one designated to go talk to the right. kids, which I'm fine. I mean, we have great, I have great relationships with the kids. Our students are actually, you know, very wonderful to work with. And I said, sure, I'll talk to you. And sitting and talking to the kids about the dress code, there was not one thing I could argue with. Mm. Um, and when we made the change and we became, we, we adopted the uh the model dress code of the National Organization of Women, the Oregon chapter wrote a model dress code for schools. Schools, We adopted that, we made a, a few adjustments to that, and nothing has changed about our school day. Uh, like absolutely nothing has changed um, as far as behavior and as far as what's appropriate. Um, students have taken it upon themselves to know what's decent to wear the school and what is not. Mm-hmm. And so it's not like we have kids coming to school in bikinis or anything like that, uh, but they're just comfortable. And right. we have not had any incidents of of kids violating the dress code. Uh, so um, 
so I, I said all that to say, work. the students had an idea in their minds what needed to happen. Mm. And so we worked with them to make it happen. And because they were already doing it, nothing has changed about right. the school day. Right. Did you, did you, when you actually sat down to sort of decide on what the new policy was going to look like, did you, did you assemble a small group of students on a committee of some sort? Or did you just, how did you actually um, I mean, you told me where you got that, but who decided ultimately to to borrow that that language, adapt it, and were the students involved in that process? Um, well, our students have been involved the uh, the entire way. Mm-hmm. The moment that they uh, staged the protest, I met with student leaders throughout the school year. I would say that protest was in October, and we made proposed recommendations to change the dress code in in May. Mm-hmm. So um, schools have a little bit of bureaucracy, just like every other um, agency does. Right. And uh, that, that conversation needed to be had with other adults. It needed to be taken through our discipline committee. It, need, it needed to be um, looked at with other uh, administrators and other groups. And so uh, at the end of the day, after students proposed the kinds of things that they wanted in the dress code, mm-hmm. Uh, simultaneously, our communications director at the time and others, we began to sort of look to see what other schools were mm-hmm. doing. And we found the, the the National Organization of Women, we found that model dress code. It it, it sort of um, it had everything we needed, what the students wanted. And it also had some things uh, in there that we uh, thought were pretty important uh, to, um, um, to make a comprehensive change to um, our dress code policy. Right. Did you get any pushback from from teachers or parents on this change? No pushback. I think that um, um, the only there were concerns. The concerns were, oh, the kids are just going to come to school. They're not going to be wearing any clothes. That never happened. happened. All the kids are just going to be in the hall with their hoodie and hats on. We're not going to be able to tell who they are. That hasn't happened. So there were just weird sort of respectability politics that play that have been that played into the concerns, and all of which have not uh, come to pass. I was talking to a teacher the other day, who took a group of students uh, to a uh, to a lab, and they had to dress professionally, and every kid dressed professionally. So <laughs> some say, "Oh, you have to kids have to come to school so they know how to dress in the real world." Right. Well, if you tell kids how to dress, and they'll do that, you know, they can do it. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, I think it's really believing and trusting the kids, and have the expectation that they will do um, what is best uh, because they always do, uh, and that's what we found here at ETHS. And uh, I've been very proud of the students' response to this. One kid uh, who identifies as uh, Latinx, he he wore a sombrero to school for the first day because he got to wear a hat. Because mm-hmm. that was a part, big part of our dress code. No hats. And so right. now kids wear hats and they wear it because they're trying to be stylish, right. not because they're affiliated with the gang. Right, right. So if if we're talking to, a, a, if a principal out there right now is listening and is thinking about doing this, do you have any advice for them moving forward if they're, they're going to look at their dress code? I would say get your students and get your community involved um, mm-hmm. because a lot of people have um, um, strong feelings about this. Uh, and there's a way to write dress codes that are gender equitable, right? You cannot, this is not, I told our staff, you know, that if um, 
people were saying, oh, if the girls come to school and they're wearing their shoulders are out or whatever, then that's going to distract the boys. And I, as a man, said it is up for the boys to manage their own distractions. You yeah. can't put that burden on, the, on our young women. Right. Right. Uh, That is just that is very tangential rape culture and all these other kinds of things that we put on women. That's not their That's not their fault. So I think having those kinds of conversations uh, with their principals should have with their with their students and should have with their families in the community about how to make dress codes uh, gender equitable. And if if, if the school is racially diverse, racially equitable so that no and body positive, right? right because this right. is a time where kids are going through a lot with their uh, with their self image and things like that. And there's a way to write language, and there's a way to look at these kinds of issues that are that that are asset that is that are asset framed and that benefit and center students and not the adults and what they think is respectable or not. Right. Thank you so much. This is this is fantastic. Is it is it okay for me to link people to your uh, current dress code so they can see that Absolutely. as a model. Okay. Absolutely. We, and we've been talking to high schools and districts all over the country about our, our about doing this and a lot have a lot have chosen to follow us and uh, some some principals have said we want our kids to come to school dressed appropriately whatever that means. So, yeah. you know, yeah. yes, please be happy to be happy to do that. Okay. All right, Dr. Campbell, thank you so much for for helping us understand your process. All right. No, thank you so much for having me. I hope this episode has convinced a lot of school leaders to revisit and revise their policies for student dress. If your school is ready to get started, I've put together a list of resources on Cult of Pedagogy that can help. One of these is a report put out in 2018 by the National Women's Law Center. It's called Dress Coded, Black Girls, Bodies, and Bias in D.C. Schools. Although the report is specific to D.C. schools, it's applicable everywhere, offering a thorough overview of the problem and recommendations for revising dress codes. The report also lists guidelines for dress code enforcement. A few of these are so important that I want to note them here just in case you don't end up downloading the guide. The first is that students should never be forced to leave school or the classroom for violating the dress code. The second is that schools should require all members of the school community who have the power to enforce the dress code to participate in bias and anti-harassment training at least once a year. The third is that school police should not be allowed to enforce the dress code. And finally, adults should not touch students or their clothing to correct dress code violations and should not require students to undress in public spaces. So that all comes, again, from the report called Dress Coded, Black Girls, Bodies, and Bias in D.C. Schools from the National Women's Law Center. Another resource I'm including is the revised dress code for Evanston Township High School, the school I talked about with Dr. Campbell. It's an excellent model of a revised, inclusive dress code, specific enough to avoid loose interpretation, but broad enough to allow for a lot of student choice. The document lists freedoms along with restrictions and specifies non-discrimination on the basis of race, religion, gender, gender expression, and sexual orientation. For links to both of these and other helpful resources, along with the videos I mentioned earlier, visit cultofpedagogy.com, click podcast, and choose episode 115. 
to get a weekly email from me about my newest blog posts, podcast episodes, and products, sign up for my mailing list at cultofpedagogy.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day.